Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In today's episode, we speak with Carol Y. Hai. She is the head of data science and analytics and at Tenjin. Tenjin is a San Francisco-based startup that has built a growth infrastructure for mobile app marketers. Carol is based in Berlin as their head of data science and analytics. She has awesome experience in mobile games and mobile internet industry for over 10 years now. Before her current role, she was head of analytics at Fiber, and before that, she worked at uh, companies like GWC and Naver. In this episode, she tells us about the strengths of being a generalist, how to upskill through your career, how to develop your consulting skills, the importance of data modeling skills in data teams, how to set a strategy for your data team. It's a really great episode, a really interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Carol Waihai. How are you doing, Carol? Hi, Felipe. Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thanks so much for making the time to do the interview. I've been looking forward to speaking with you for quite a while. So thank you so much for making the time. No, it's my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here today. Thank you. At the beginning of the interviews, I always like to ask people what brought them into the data science field or the data field in general. What was that for you? What brought you into data? Yes, it was actually quite a long path. I didn't start my career in data at all, or at least only superficially. So I first worked in this company called NHN, which is a very big Korean internet group, a bit the equivalent of Google and Facebook and MSN at the same time. And they had a little branch in China, in Beijing, where I was, uh, where they had an online dictionary. And I worked in this dictionary first as a content project manager. So we were trying to enrich the dictionary by uploading more and more entries. And during this process, there was a lot of data review, data processing to do. So I worked a lot with Excel at that time. And for some reason, I really like it. I think people love or hate Excel. So yes. on my side, I fall in love with Excel and learn a lot of features, learn the magic VLOOKUP. And that was kind of my first contact with data processing and uh, this kind of uh, work. But then in this company where I stayed almost three years, I switched hat a lot. And I also did kind of customer analysis of the traffic on the website, customer support, also strategic planning, which was more towards marketing research. In that case, more absorbing a lot of reports and uh, market data. And I finished in sales, which was a bit far away from the data side of work. Yes, but also uh, very interesting, I'm sure. Yes, and uh, I did that because in that time, that was the most critical aspect of the business. The, the dictionary was successful, being used by a lot of users that were learning Chinese, but we were not managing in making money. Like It's very common in the dictionary business. You don't make so much money. You only rely on ads, and ads doesn't pay that much. So I thought that's the most critical part, and I should learn. And also, it's a very interesting skill to have to be able to sell, sell yourself, sell your project. So I went there, and when I left the company, I spent some time doing volunteer work with uh, my friends who wanted to organize in China event called iWeekend that is to promote entrepreneurship where people mm -hmm. come together over the weekend some people bring their ideas and other people bring their skills and they'll build a team and 
try to hack a website or an app over the weekend and maybe it's the start of a business for them. So at that time, I also used my uh, sales skill, or at least uh, keep developing my sales skills because I was raising money trying to look for sponsor and also help on the organization side. And that was also very eye-opening for me because I was not so familiar with the startup spirit and the startup community. And I really enjoyed these people who are so driven and want to start their own things, be their own boss, but also change something in the world that they think is not functioning properly, solving a problem. Then when I was uh, volunteering for this association, that's when I was approached by my next employer, the GWC, who organized one of the largest conferences in China for mobile internet and apps. And I was still doing sales and sponsorship organizing events. But that's where I got more knowledge about the app industry, mobile, internet, and already got in touch with a lot of uh, big company in gaming and in advertisement in, in the space. Your background has been so diverse and that you seem to jump from one challenge to the next. It's so interesting. Yeah, I guess it's always been part of my profile. So I studied, I always liked math in high school, in school, but I decided to study international relations because I come from a small island and I thought I was not that connected to the world. I wanted to learn more about country relations and the history between them. And my study actually was a good match because it's trained people to be very generalist and to find their own path and to be able to switch from one topic to another. So it's true. That's what I did in my career and most of my classmates also have this kind of path where they're doing things that are very different from me, but they'll build their own way. And I think that term is so important and I find it so valuable to be or focus on being a generalist, focusing on being a generalist. How did that help you through your career? Yeah, I think it helped me being curious and try new things, develop different type of skill set, particularly on the soft side, like communication, uh, working as a team, learning from other people and yeah, not being scared to start from scratch and then, yeah, always be a beginner in a new skill. After I, I left GMIC, they sent me in the US to organize one of their conferences. And that's when I started thinking about, okay, I'm still doing sales and it was a skill I, I want to learn, but I don't really see myself being sales director in five years. That's not really what drives me. Actually, I think I like a work that I'm a little bit more sitting behind a computer and like I remember my Excel day and I remember I like math. And at the time, a lot of people were talking about data science and analytics. And there was a lot of meetup in the Bay Area where I was. So I got curious and joined a few of them and realized that, yeah, that was something that I was very interested in. And because people were more and more recruiting in this field, I thought it would, uh, it would be a good path for me to train myself and join this new career path. So at that time, I learned visualization software Tableau. Already had been around for quite a while in the US, but not so long in Europe. So when I decided to come back to Europe in Berlin, I applied for a few jobs on Fiverr, which is a tech company for the mobile space. Uh, they were looking for business intelligence analysts that knows Tableau because they wanted to roll out this tool in the company. And so even though I did not have much experience in business intelligence, they hired me because I knew the, the tool and I built up my skill from there. And I think being a generalist allowed me to do that and have enough confidence in the fact that I will learn on the spot. And how did you go about learning everything that you needed for the role? So Tableau, they had some very good online program. I encourage people to learn their tool because the more people know how to use it, the more they can sell their software. And I think what was a big driver of Tableau and the fact that it's still very popular today is that Facebook was one of the users and they, they do also a lot of talk about how to build very nice dashboards. It's also all about the current farm. It's already been around for five years or so, but the idea of democratizing data and letting people doing their own analytics. So there would be a BI team who prepare the data and then the Tableau software and but any people in the company can do their own data digging and answer their own business questions. So Tableau is a lot about this. So they have a lot of training online that I followed. And then once in Fiber, I also ramped up my skills in SQL. I, I didn't know SQL at all, but or just like some basic things that I did at school. But it's something that is quite easy to learn if you spend enough time. And at that time in the company, I was surrounded by very good PI engineers. So I learned from their own code, ask questions, and always try to write or improve SQL myself rather than asking them for support. Over a year, I think I really 
improve my SQL skills. Any other skills I learned that was also from my colleagues. So that's having working with the right people, people that are better than you in certain area is always valuable. And you used, well, first, no, what, what I'll ask you is, how did you go from starting as a BI consultant in Fiverr? How did you go from there to head of analytics? Yeah, it took some time. I stayed four years in Fiverr. Um, at the beginning, I really didn't know anything about business intelligence, except for my own role of doing visualization. And I think it's really spending time with my colleagues and also seeing the team changing, seeing the management of the team changing, that I could get a better idea of, okay, what are the different kind of BI team you have? What are the different profiles? So it's very typical to have BI engineers that are separated from BI analysts, with the analysts being more in touch with business understanding the business concern and all the KPI and then they're able to translate this to the BI engineer that really more take care of all the analytics system the pipeline monitoring but also sometimes data modeling preparing the data so that it's very easy for the analyst to get the information they need very quickly but there's also often a lot of overlap and mixed profile I understood also spending this time in fiber the difference between a data engineer in the production system and BI engineer and by talking with more and more people, I see that different companies have different setup. In certain companies, these two roles are very separated. But mm. in some companies that are maybe smaller, you don't have a dedicated BI team and then they just take production engineer to start building the analytics system. So I think all of this knowledge was very important for me to grow as a data scientist and a, a leadership position because then you understand what are the different possible setup, what works, what works less, because you already have some kind of framework work in mind, it helps you collect more information and develop your network and ask what other people do. I guess you guys had so much data in that company. I think it was or around 500 million daily active users. So then to manage all of that, how was the team structured? So things change a lot, but I will talk about the latest setup before I left the company yes. where we had a data team and a data science team and a BI team. So at that time, I was already heading the BI team. We were four people, but then the data engineering team were also about five, six people and they had their own team lead. And there was a data scientist team with two people. And then we had one person that was heading this free department just so that we all align. So this was my boss, Christian Schaeffer, and he studied as a data scientist. He, his background is in, uh, he is a doctor in statistics, and he led the, the BI team. And then after just a few months, the, the company decided to give him also the data engineering team and to create a data science a separate team. And I think this was a very good setup where the data engineer are really focusing on processing this huge amount of data, making sure we don't lose data, that everything is monitored the proper way and everything is scalable. And particularly at the time, we were uh, switching technology technology and moving most of the things to Adobe. So there was a lot of work just on this. And then us in the BI team, we also had a lot of work because the business, finance, marketing all rely on having the data they need and prepared the way they, they need it. Internally, they usually also have quite urgent requests. So we kind of help the company by answering these people being close to business, while really the data engineer can take care more of the system and making sure everything is running properly. And data science, I would say, was working sometimes with engineers, sometimes with product on optimizing any topic like processing, maybe not processing all the requests we get, but only filtering the one that will end up on business or via yeah, optimization, of course, was a, a big topic. Yes. So tell me a little bit more about that. What were the types of problems that you were trying to solve or the improvements for the business that you were looking for in the data? So it's evolved a lot. At the very beginning, it was really just to roll out the software and train the people. So we did that. And then we set up Tableau user group internally in the company. And every week at the beginning, we would meet and give some class or ask the people what kind of dashboard they're trying to build and do really coaching and also encourage peer coaching because we want people to be good at Tableau and then serve their own team, but also talk to other stakeholders that are using Tableau and so that they can help each other. So this group was very useful 
in that way where they could become more dependent from the BI team. And we also have a, a Slack channel. So that's this internal communication channel where people can ask their question. And sometimes the BI team answer, but sometimes their peers answer because they're also quite good creating dashboards. So that was a very first step, like encouraging the self-service aspect. But after one or two years, maybe things worked too well, but uh, we, we had so many dashboards that were created by this user that sometimes it was redundant. Uh, sometimes some people didn't calculate a metrics properly and don't notice it for months. And then someone look at the dashboard and realize, oh, you've been realizing on this metric that's not properly calculated. Mm -hmm. So after one or two years, we decided to scale down and the team to take over building dashboard, but to kind of centralize all the needs within just a handful of dashboards. That was a big project because it's very hard to change people's habits, but we managed by just launching this multi-purpose dashboard with what was very flexible with a lot of filtering option and little by little people adopted it and we could remove their custom built dashboard that was not as flexible and it worked out quite well and I would say these were the bigger the two bigger projects with Tableau and of course there was a lot of executive dashboard building and anytime the executive team wanted to look at a new KPI also be able to decide on feasibility check bring recommendation uh, if it makes sense uh, what we would recommend. Also, a lot of aligning stakeholder requirements that are sometimes conflicting. It's a lot of people management as well. It seems like you were so successful in creating a, a data culture, like a data-driven culture, by having people create their own dashboards. And then, as you said, like it, it worked too well. And then the proliferation led to redundancies and it got to a point of inefficiencies. What you did there is such a difficult step in creating a data-driven culture. You got to a point that's usually quite difficult to get to. So many people in the organization excited about data <laughs> and yeah. using it in their in their day-to-day. -day. What do you think were some things that made people excited about using data and creating the dashboards themselves? I think it's also depend on the industry where you work. So at tech and mobile gaming, I think people are uh, data hungry. So they know the more data and the more uh, metrics they can look at, the more competitive they can be uh, against other, other companies. So people actually want to work with more data, but they don't necessarily have the skills or the knowledge on how to access data. So it's mainly a data access problem. So for us to promote a data culture was not that difficult. And then it was more about convincing people to input time in training themselves and learning the tool on how to access the data. That was maybe the challenge. Also, some team leaders were a bit reluctant to have one of their teammates spend one day a week training on a tool, even though they could see the, the, the gain in the long term, but we needed to do some education for that, for them to allow this time spent learning a tool on data access. So people were curious, I would say, but out of, I don't know, 20 people who need data access, maybe only five will be curious enough on, oh yes, how this is built, how is this calculated, where exactly from in, in the system is it coming from, but they would become good data analysts. And I would say 15 of them only need data access to do their other job better. And that's why when everybody could build their own dashboards, uh, just a handful will really be curious to learn the skills properly and build things and ask questions. And the rest uh, would want to just have something quickly and just trust that everything is fine and, and use the data to change a campaign setting or to try to improve their results. That's where the standardization came from because still a large majority of people only want data access. But for the handful of people that you will discover that become good data analysts, I would say it's still worth the effort to have trainings and to have groups that enable a lot of people to try it. But yeah, then you need to face the reality of a situation that most people just want the data to do their other work better and they, they don't want to become data specialists. And how were you able to uncover the needs of the people that were not building their own dashboards? They usually approach us so because we were serving so many teams. That's what happened when you have a centralized BI team and we serve everybody in the business. So we had in place a ticketing system and that helped us a lot manage requests. And also we set up a priority system and we talked with a few high level executives from time to time to help us prioritize some requests from a department over another department. So it takes a lot of education as well, because with each data request you receive, you need to ask them, OK, what is the big picture? How are you going to use this data and how is this going to help the company? And only by knowing how it's going to help the company can you benchmark this request again 
against another request and decide which one should take priority. People are usually in their own bubble, in their own department, so they don't really understand why you need all this information when for them this is the most important things to happen, like to have access to this data. So it's very important to keep a very good relationship with a stakeholder and talk to them and also be very transparent on what are the other things that keep you busy of working on, on their request and also be upfront early enough if a request is not going to get prioritized and it's going to take months for us or maybe we will, the BI team will never work on it because it's never going to be important enough. We try to be very upfront so that they can find an alternative solution early instead of building frustration. So in that case, you were looking to, because we're on this topic now, I wanted to ask you more about the, the stakeholder management. So mm -hmm. it, it sounds like people were able to find their own solutions and sort of self-cater a bit, as well as working with your team. Could you tell me a little bit more about how you did the stakeholder management piece? So that would be an extreme solution when people are left to their own means and uh, don't work with us. And hopefully they only do that for their current request, but for the next request, they would still approach us. And then we will, again, reassess depending on, on what's the impact of this data request. Yes. And also when they had to rely on their own means, that usually means they need another way to get the information that is maybe not as exact. So instead of us really counting how many ad requests we had on a specific day, they would need to come up with their own estimation using other metrics and having something that is an estimation, but that is usually good enough for their purpose. But for the stakeholder management, we usually have a few team or department that we know are more critical. And that's also come down to the company strategy, like depending on what is the focus of a company, what is the main product the company want to push in this quarter or in this year, then that will also be how we align the priority we set up. So being in touch with the executive is very important. Being able to have someone a sit in executive meeting or at least a very good point of contact that sit in the executive meeting really help us kind of go in the right direction in terms of what we are prioritizing and also what internal projects we should defocus on. Because the challenge of a BI team is, or any technical team that work with business, is that you have a lot of business requests, but you also have some requests that should come internally on how to improve your own efficiency how to scale your own system. And sometimes we needed to take a step back and look at this and decide how much time we won't spend answering business questions just so that we can increase our monitoring or the reporting capability. And how did you set a strategy for your team? I think that's the company, what the company wants. And at the time uh, when I took the lead of the BI team, it was... Uh, to keep business as happy as possible in a time where we were changing a lot of things in technology infrastructure and reporting. There was also concrete decision from our team to spend a lot of time refactoring just so that we had to deal less with crisis and more on interesting topics. So it's important to know what the company is expecting for you, but also what your teammates want and what drives them. So I always make an effort to talk to them. So we have one-on-one meeting set up where every week you sit down with one of your teammates and just generally speak how they feel about work, what makes them happy, what don't make them happy, how we can improve the work relationship, the communication and also what motivates them, what they like, what they like, what they don't like. And in a time like this where we need to maintain the system and refactor a lot, this yeah. is not super exciting no. task. So <laughs> it was important for me to check. Yeah, it's quite often the case that you need to do boring tasks and you need to make sure the system is up and running and you have to do what you have to do. So they understand that. But uh, then we make sure that we also plan some time, maybe every two weeks for training and for them to learn something very like. And so that when we're done with all this refactoring, we can improve something in a way that I think is interesting and innovative, maybe try a new technology. One of the things we, we put a lot of emphasis was uh, data modeling. So everybody made the effort to learn more about data modeling. And we have a very good book that was recommended by my boss, that is the data schema, the star schema. Yeah, very accessible and very good best practice in terms of uh, star schema modeling. And yeah, we got a lot of ideas from that. And then once we were done with the factoring, we improve a lot of the data modeling that made updating or creating new reports much easier. And tell me, how did you decide your on your technology stack? Because you had quite a, a diverse one. How did mm -hmm. you decide what, what you were going to use? 
So in fiber, I didn't really have too much choice and also because I did not come from a technology side. So when I joined the company as an analyst, of course, they already had their own setup and the BI team lead at the time with the CTO took most of the decision in terms of database and a, a server, and which ETL tool we use. So we use the open source ETL tool Pantaho, mm-hmm. uh, which I really liked. And even today, I would use it if he can in the company. And then in terms of database, it was Exasol, which is a German in-memory cloud database that works really well, that is good for uh, a lot of data and that makes analytics really fast. Uh, So I just... Until I be, became the lead of a team in fiber, I just uh, took the legacy of the technology. And for me, uh, coming from the non-technology, not technical side, I more take this opportunity to learn about this different tool and what exists outside and how it compares. But I didn't stay long enough for me to take any decision in changing the technology. When we had a switch in management, we already did that and we had a discussion to switch to Redshift. But in the end, because everything else was changing in the company, we decided to not do it. Today, in my current round in Tenjin, so I didn't mention yet this last step of my career, but uh, I joined Tenjin maybe four months ago as a head of data science and analytics. In this position as well, we work currently more with the technology we have and we work a lot with Redshift and all the Amazon suite and we're only starting now to maybe set up a BI infrastructure so all these mm. technology decisions will come but again I think this should be a, a team decision and make sure that the engineering uh, of a department customer success which is like the main stakeholder of any analytics right now we endorse the technology we pick as a team and uh, we benchmark different tools and we take a conscious decision rather than what often happens happen where a CTO or head of BI come in and just because they have experience of preference of a certain technology, that's what they use, which in a way also makes sense because you want to be efficient and you want to spend less time uh, solving technical problems and more time doing analysis. But yeah, uh, because the technology stay for a long time, you should really make sure you, you can get support from the rest of the company in the technology you choose. I am going to ask you more about Tenjin, but before I do, I wanted to ask you, what would you do differently in fiber now or looking back and maybe specifically around the evolution of the dashboards and having to change from a decentralized to a centralized model? What would you do differently if you had the opportunity to do it again? Yeah, I think we would have made the move to go towards the central central situation a bit earlier. I think it was still needed at the very beginning to let everybody be free, discover the tool that it was brand new, what Tableau can do, and had as many people uh, hands-on as possible, also because they are then become advocates of this software. But it's quite expensive, and you need enough people to be happy with it for it to make sense. But yeah, maybe uh, we should have kept, even though we had this weekly session, maybe we should have something in addition, like a monthly meeting with a certain department where we review all the dashboard of this department and we can already point out within the team that, oh, you you are both building almost the same dashboard. Maybe you should already think of aggregating everything together. And yeah, in that sense, we, we let people a bit too on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be one thing. Also, at the time, no, this I wouldn't change. I think this worked pretty well that uh, when we rolled out Tableau, we had two servers where people can publish their dashboard. So one was the one that only BI is publishing. So it's kind of dashboard that we maintain and we can guarantee that everything is calculated properly. And then we had a test server uh, for anybody else that has a Tableau license to publish their own dashboard. That's actually on this server that things became quite chaotic and we quickly had like maybe three. 300 different dashboards. So maybe yeah, a bit keeping this setup, but uh, having maybe a stronger process of, okay, this dashboard on the test server is being used by a lot of people. So let's move it to the production server and take over maintenance, which was maybe what, why we didn't do it at the time was also workload management. That We had yes. so many requests coming from so many departments that sometimes it was good for the company that someone else take care, answer other people's questions and keep the maintenance of it. And then we could make progress in different directions at the same time. But it comes because but at some point you need to refactor, review, and uh, clean up. That's right. Yes, and it's always such a tough balance between the overwhelming demand and what, yeah. what a team can deliver at any point in time. So it's, mm-hmm. it's always a matter of prioritization. So that's really interesting to hear your insights and I guess your, your views on looking back. 
I think things went pretty well at Fiverr in, in the different stage where we were. Like when I joined the BI team, it was a very new team. Like it'd been built only maybe three, four months ago. And I think the way we grew and changed and iterate was pretty efficient overall. Tell me about your, your current role in Tenjin. Yeah, so Tenjin is uh, actually in the same space than Fiber, uh, advertisement in mobile apps. But while Fiber is platform to find the best ad for an app, us in Tenjin, we're really only doing the analytics side. So we're kind of observing the industry. So someone who publishes an, an app can use us to get the data of how much they're spending on user acquisition, how much money they're making and have all of this data kind of standardized, clean up, and organized in one dashboard. Today, the industry is very fragmented, so it takes quite a big BI team for you to be able to do this internally, and only a very big company like King, Machine Zone, have their own system where, where they're able to do that and maintain it. So Tenjin wants to kind of democratize data engineering for user acquisition. That was what was attracted to me. So join a company that is purely about data and analytics and customers that work with us because they are interested in in in, uh, in having the proper data for to become competitive, to check if their games are working. And uh, Tenjin is providing the data in a dashboard, but also in another form, which is kind of a, a direct access to the data in a Redshift database for most sophisticated customer who would want to build their own dashboard or who would want to do data science projects like optimization or prediction uh, looking at user-level data, which more and more publishers are asking in the industry. And uh, they needed something, someone like me with an analytics profile to check how the customer would be using this data that is accessible through database and how we can make the experience better, how, what kind of analytics we could encourage them to do or which one we could do internally as well. And what are some of the, the challenges that you have in front of you at the moment? There's the company challenge. So Fiber was a 200-something people. Tangine is, we are only 14, I think, uh, today. It's only two of us in Berlin. So sometimes, you know, it's the typical challenge of working remote. But we make a lot of effort of thinking online and also meeting with the rest of the team in San Francisco every quarter. And in terms of work and data science it's the challenge is also what is interesting to me is that everything needs to be set up so in one way uh, Tangine as a product is acting a little bit like a data engineering team where the big chunk of the data is being processed and monitored and everything is fine on this side and then they only need maybe an additional team analytics team or data scientist to look at the data and run some project one of them that we did was about around fraud which uh, is also a big concern in the industry the more the publishers spend in user acquisition the more channel of uh, spans he need to use and then the more risk there is that some of the publisher where where his campaign is is being advertised are fraudulent and a lot of industry talk about fraud and is a bit scared about it but they don't really know how to prevent it or how even to observe it so this was one of my first projects uh, joining the team to uh, use our database product to see okay what kind of analytics we can run that will clearly show to a customer if fraud is happening or not could you tell me more about that fraud what is it like Yes, so one simple indicator we look at is, so it's all about customer is paying for a user to find his app and download it. But he, of course, wants valuable cost uh, user. So people who will actually be interested in their game and play their game long enough, they can monetize this user through advertisement or through in-app purchase inside his game. But a lot of when you spend money to acquire a user, somewhere in the channel, like either the person you work with or the person the channel is working with can be fraudulent. And that means they will provide you user, but either fake. So there's a download and someone install your app, but it's not a real person and they end up not playing your game, but you already paid for the install. There's a lot of different cases of fraud, like people who would install and play your games, kind of hack your game to have free in-app purchase. So that's what people want to be careful about. So in this fraud uh, analysis we did, is uh, we look at something that is very standard, which is the time to install, the time that's passed between the moment the person click on your ad and the moment they install your app. So normally that's the several steps. They see your advertisement in a different app, they click on it, and then they're interested in, in your app. So they go to the app store and then download your app. And then they need to open your app for you to know that, okay, this user installed my application. 
application. So between this first click on your advertisement and the final install and open your app, it usually spans sometimes. It really depends on the user, on the game, on the country, but it's really rare that people take less than five seconds between the click and the install. And by looking at this time to install and particularly at scale, like in the last 20,000 installs that you got, how is the distribution of this time to install? Then we can see very interesting things like in a natural behavior, you have a very steep increase of install between I don't know, like in an example, it would be at the 22nd point. And then after 20 seconds, you still have a lot of install, but it's kind of very slowly decreased until you still have install after an hour, two hours, three hours, but it just keeps decreasing very consistently. In some case of fraud, particularly programmatic fraud, where a robot is creating most of the install, then uh-huh. you will see a spike that can also happen very early, like just two seconds after the click and already is very suspicious. But then even if it happened later, around 20 or 30 seconds, the spike of programmatic install will be so drastic that you would see that is very unnatural and then instead of the distribution of install slowly going down it would just go down very quickly and then become stable and slow down so the curve are very different and this is something you can see through this uh, fraud analytics that we built and for that do you need to have not only all the data prepared but prepared in a way that you can look at the users in a longitudinal manner so to see how they what they've done over time this was simple enough that we only looked at click and install. So yes, you needed the time of a click, the time of an install, and then through some SQL, you kind of prepare the data the way you need. And after that, run a very simple Python script that kind of graph all this time to install the way you want to look at it. And is it difficult to do the data preparation for multiple clients that want to look for the same problem? So that is the great thing in Tangent is that because we are the one providing this database with all your data, so this database looks in a standard way for all of our customers. So mm-hmm. if we prepare this kind of analytics for one customer, it also works for the next customer just because the, the data is prepared the same way. But that's usually, I would say, the main challenge of data scientists. And also because I think data scientists mean so many things uh, nowadays and many people are hired as a data scientist, but then are also expected to do a little bit of data engineering work, data preparation before I can start any in-depth analytics. And this is the challenge when we start in a new company to understand the production data and prepare it in a way that is easy to use for analytics. Yes. And also that's why a need for a company like Tangent exists because not a lot of people has expertise in, in this and particularly in preparing the data for BI needs, for data science needs. And this is what would take the, the longest time in a project. The the very first data science project of a company would be about modeling the data, making it in a way that is easy to use and also that the data scientists have to learn and understand, okay, what are all the tables I need? How do they relate to each other? How do I join them? And this is what takes always the, the longest time. So does that mean that the, the customer needs to sign up to Tengen first and then the data is gathered on your system and then it can be analyzed or how, how does it work? Yeah, a very big simplification would be this, that they sign up, at some point the data get collected, we organize it, model it in a standard way, and then they can analyze it, provided that they they studied the schema, so we have documentation on how the data is organized, which table we have, how each table relates one to another. But unfortunately, between the sign up and the data collection, there's a lot of setup steps that are traditional in in the tracking and advertisement industry, where people need to uh, register all their apps on our platform, then register each user acquisition channel they worked uh, with. Uh, They need to make sure all the events they want us to track are being tracked and received by us. So it takes some time to have a setup right, but uh, even this is kind of standardized on our side so that we we have instruction for everything. So for a company that is not used to do user acquisition, they can still do it following our instruction. While if you try to do this yourself, it's going to be quite hard to get this technical instruction on how to set up things properly for your company out of the internet, or you would need to hire some marketing consultant that help you do that. We try to really simplify things as much as we can. And then once all the setup is reviewed and good, then yeah, you, you can start using the data. And what are some of the apps and the channels that you were mentioning? 
Yeah, I can't mention customers or their apps, but no, for the channel, yes. of course, we actually work with all the UA channels. So we have more than 200 UA channels that you can connect. Even if someone wants to work with a brand new one that we didn't know about, they can just send us the request and within two or three weeks, we'll integrate it. So the, the most used channel uh, is no secret, it's Facebook. Like they're really the winner in terms of user acquisition. They help all the companies acquire users through their platform. You have, of course, Google, Google Search, Apple Ad Search. Applovin is another big UA channel. And then you have a lot of other ones, Bangle for videos. Yeah, there's really many, many. When a customer connects one of their user acquisition channels, is the data being captured from that moment onwards or do you have access to historical data as well? There's different data we track. Some of the data is captured then onwards uh, through our SDK. So data that we collect through the SDK, we cannot pull historical data. But uh, most of the data from their spend or how much revenue they're making through their monetization channel, uh, this we query their channel API. And in that case, we can pull historical data, usually not more than 28 days. Mm -hmm. But if we wanted to, we could pull longer in, in the past. And I think a lot of the work that you're doing is consulting with customers. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. How did your early career, and I'm thinking the days of, you know, working in the online dictionary and working in the startup community, how did that time help you be a better consultant now? Or what skills did you learn back then that help you now? It's always come back to the generalist skill and putting yourself in someone's shoes, like trying to think the way they think. And this, yeah, the, my early days in, in the online dictionary and volunteering for iWeekend. Partly when I was in Fiverr, it was obvious because we serve two sides of a business, like the people who spend budget for user acquisition and the people who see if the users are valuable and making enough money for it to, to be valuable. And these two sides of a business don't interact so much with one another and sometimes you would talk to them because they're both stakeholders and they will use the same name for different metrics and then you are the one who need to speak both their language so it's almost like talking learning a, a foreign language and understanding that oh, okay when he used this word he means that but when you talk to this person from this different team and he use the same words he means something different having a generalist mind is about being aware and curious and not thinking that oh okay because you're the specialist this is the word that should use and not others and you learn the soft skill of facilitating communication and uh, educating people and how can somebody improve those skills do you think or acquire them soft skill i think it's something you could do on the side but if you are working in a very technical job and you really love it you could still improve your soft skill like by joining association, like any things where you need to work as a team. And even better, if you can lead a team, so like this uh, volunteer work I did with uh, iWeekend, there's a lot of this kind of association that promotes entrepreneurship or anything else that you're interested in, like theater, public speaking, can be a very good way to improve your soft skill. Like in addition of like communication, working as a team, trying to understand people's language, I think public speaking is also something I did in a club called Toastmaster that is very well known in in the US, which is also a free association. And this also allows you to get out of your shelf, learn to express yourself in public, build confidence to go towards other people, learn their own stories. And all of these are part of soft skills, like interacting with people that are different from you, I think in any way, in for, with any pretext, any excuse would, would be help of your soft skill. And then also reading books, like leadership books, always help communication and leadership books, because even if they are not all good, I think you have different opinion and then you take what you like and you implement the theory that you like and you want to test. And do you have any favorite leadership or communication books or any ones that you liked? There's one called The Platinum Rule uh, that is about uh -huh. communication and the fact that you have maybe simplified four type of people with the way they think, the way they communicate, and then it gives you tips on how to interact and understand this profile a bit better and adapt your behavior. So yeah, this one was a little bit eye-opening on, oh yes, like people who are this style are not necessarily bad or annoying, but it's just a different version of me. And if I see this other way, then I can relate. And uh, it's important to always do that, like understand why someone, but you don't understand what is 
blocking each other to understand each other what is the, the value of the communication style that make it difficult and then be able to overcome it. Um, there's another book called The Leadership Challenge that I like but because it's also come with a exercise book where you can do practical exercise when you lead a team, when you volunteer in an association and lead a team, a project team. And what do you like about startups and working in startups? I think it's almost like a luxury to be able to work in startup because it is not as stable and a bit more risky. Like you're never sure that the startup will still exist in six months. That's part of a risk. But because you have a smaller group of people and usually people who know each other or at least have been working together through hardship, then the quality of the work relationship you have are better and more personal. Like in big companies, it's easy to think, okay, work is work. My personal life is outside. And even though I have friendly relationship with my colleagues, I don't want to mix things up too much. But in startup, you can't really do that because you have to, the, the border is much more blur because you both commit to the same same dream in a way but you all want to solve this problem that this company is solving and you're all willing to take the risk that it's not going to work and in six months you're going to be out of work so already because you're sharing this risk and kind of this same value that this is a problem you're interested in it creates some bonds and because you have to work a lot there's a lot of pressure things are a bit more chaotic in, in startup you are more decided for yourself what you work on what is the priority of course thinking with a team but you have more flexibilities then it's very important that you trust people like right now we're onboarding someone new and something I thought about when I wanted to onboard him was you have to realize in a startup that you don't have a lot of process but the process are being replaced by the fact that you trust your colleague and even if there's no formal way of doing something or solving something just because you trust they will do the right thing then you just communicate and solve things through communication rather than process and that's something I like like I really love working I wouldn't call myself a workaholic anymore because I try to recover <laughs> but uh, yeah the work is still an important part of my life and enjoying working with the people I work with is very important and I think this is something in startup that you get because you a little bit get to choose your team that's right and I love that that contrast that you made between processes and trust and less processes require more trust um, mm -hmm. That's so, so true. And tell me, how did you recover from being a workaholic? It's tough, <laughs> but... Uh, I, I, need, I need some tips. <laughs> yeah, well, you just, you need to set up some line, strict line. But yeah, after this time, I go back to home, even if I did not finish all the things I wanted to finish. I think, yeah, being more tolerant towards yourself. And particularly in startup, you really need to have this limit for yourself because well, you will never finish the work and I think I'm reading this uh, management book as well from the former Intel CEOs and when you reach a certain management level as well uh, you will never finish all the work so you just need to have the work ethic that to say okay I've done enough for today or I've done the maximum I can for today and now I just go home and relax so that tomorrow I'm more productive and I'll keep doing as much as I can but you just know realistically that there's no way you can finish everything so once you have this realization only two solutions either you still try and then you risk the burnout which is not helpful for anybody nor for you nor for your colleague nor for the company or uh, you try to have a healthier a balance and set up a maximum time by which you leave the office and of course uh, having some sports outlets good very important i think for for mental health so i try to go running twice a week even though i hate it and i'm really bad at it but it's a good way to finish shape thank you now i would like to change tact a little bit and ask you some more high level questions the first one is what do you think makes a great data scientist so what we call a data scientist can be so variable. Uh, I think I would look at it in two ways. There's a great data scientist that is very good at the technique and statistic knowledge. So that could be like formal education, being really good at math, having done a PhD actually in any topic, just give you the discipline of uh, doing research, being able to focus on a hard topic for a long time. So this is one aspect. Uh, but I think nowadays in, in the industry, the issue is that data scientists know what they do, know the, the technique, but no one else in the company <laughs> understands what they do or uh, how things work. So then the, the communication skill and the patience and love 
helping educating other people also become a very important skill for data scientists. Maybe if you're lucky, you're part of a data scientist team and your boss can do this for you. Like he will understand all the technical challenge or all the things you do. And then he will be the one uh, talking with the business or, and educating people. But I think at some point you will want to change and very likely a company, the company who will hire you will need you to also be able to explain and break it down to people who are not as technical, how things work, why it's important to do it. And yeah, be very patient, I would say. There's one more thing that also because you will be the one educating others, sometimes they would be uh, really smart and ask good questions that make you also move forward with your, with your research. I think you also need yourself to have a discipline of asking yourself from time to time when you are in a, in a project, is it worth the effort? What I am trying to gain when I improve this model, for example, even if I gain 1% more accuracy, like the three weeks of effort I will input it, is it really valuable for the company? Sometimes I think the data scientists get lost in being very motivated in solving the problem, improving the model, but they forget like the higher view of is it really valuable for the company? Is it worth the trade-off of the resource I'm inputting in? And I think more and more, particularly for data scientists who want to have a leadership position, that's something they need to be more pragmatic about. That's such an easy rabbit hole for people to get lost in, in just chasing a, a better model instead of uh, looking around on whether it's the best place for the resource, as you said. And how in the past or with your teams, how have you been able to stop that from happening? I think like talking maybe more with business analyst because it's it's the same i think you need to think like enough particular important projects to see exactly where they're getting stuck what is happening on their side also in a way like make them understand that hey maybe it's not worth the effort and i want you to take the decision that now it's good enough and then you're just like a middle person that bring back to them what business thinks very often as a technical person we want something that is really bulletproof and like scalable that everything works but then we just need to remind to the teammate hey for business what they care about is ABC and this is good enough for the time being and and also we have that other projects that are more important than improving or finishing the current project. So I think yeah it's a lot of reiteration. Be careful of how your teammates are spending their time if you think that the project is taking longer than you thought and reiterating the priority of the company. I wanted to also ask you what do you think makes a, a great data science leader? Yeah I think that someone, I think definitely the communication, maybe even more than being good and knowing the latest technology is the best because I think as a team lead, you, your role is really to serve your team and be able to remove the roadblock. And the best way you can do that for them is by being close to business and being close to what the stakeholder want, what are their priority and when do they think something is good enough so that you don't waste a lot of time doing things that are better or interesting, but you need to increase the value of how people perceive the data science team in the end. And if you're doing too many things that are obscure or that business don't really see the difference, then you're not helping them advance in their career. So I think it's it's a lot of being a mediator between business and your own team and also promoting the work of your teammates, trying as much as possible to democratize the data science project and maybe push your team to present and try to present in a simplified way what their projects are about to a broader audience. And through that, help them grow their professional capabilities. Exactly, yeah. Public speaking and explaining their project to non-technical audience. What do you think are the current challenges in data science? To me, the main challenge, um, particularly when you recruit, is just the fact that data science is such a hot topic that everybody want to do it and also a lot of companies want to recruit for it but without a very precise idea of what they want to achieve so a lot of companies just want to hire a data scientist and think this person is going to solve all their problems and they kind of rely on this person to frame what is the team going to do what's the challenge they're going to work on so I think that's the main challenge like expectation management and educating the employer in what you can do and what you cannot do what is the setup you need before being able to do any data science so yeah maybe just general it's actually a good place to be the fact that people who are not so educated about data want to work with data professionals so that means we will get there and in a few years 
a general knowledge about data and uh, what you need as a setup before being able to do analytics or data science uh, will become more and more common knowledge. That is true. I completely agree that expectation management is, I think, one of the main things to focus on now because it is a, a big challenge for a lot of people. And what do you think are the future challenges in the industry in data science? There's always the risk that most of our work gets automated and done by AI. I know one of my colleagues who is a big fan of this theory that soon you wouldn't need BI analysts anymore or data scientists anymore. I don't believe so because it's true that a lot of the technical work you do will be automated, but I think this is great. And I think the data scientists will also love this to do less of the data cleaning and the modeling feeding and the modeling improvements. All of this will be more and more facilitated and automated. Then maybe the, the data scientist job will evolve in something where it's uh, someone who knows how to use tools and automation and AI that has the critical thinking of thinking, hey, how to solve this business problem, what statistic package I can use, I can try, and trying new things, connecting the dots, like maybe it would be more a conceptual job than it is today. Have you heard the, the phrase imposter syndrome? Sometimes yes. it's used around uh, data science. Yes. What, what do you think of it? I think it's true. At least it's true for me. And I also hear it a lot in our industry, in any data science community. I think it's maybe you, we all have this idea of a perfect data scientist. And then it's always someone that is not like you, <laughs> like yourself. But uh, the fact is you have so many different profiles of people becoming a data scientist like me. I did not study math in university. I didn't have any formal training in data processing or in, not even in computer science. But yeah, you, we all reach a space where we're all data scientists, but with different skill sets. And I think where you come from brings skills that are unique to you. And in the end, being data scientist is you, you can learn by yourself and you understand what are the challenge, like the technical challenge you need to solve and the communication with business. So it's not about being the best technically or being the best at communication. The field is so big and there's so many skills that are required to be a great data scientist that your background gives you a unique flavor mm -hmm. and therefore you shouldn't feel bad about the imposter syndrome. You should use your background to your advantage. That's a, a really good way to look at it. Yeah, and uh, I think it's always good to remind yourself that we all have the imposter syndrome in a way or another. That helps. What excites you the most about data science? Why do you love it? I think the fact that today it's kind of a new software engineer, like in the 80s, so computer become democratized and people went more and more into the field. And in the last five, 10 years, it's data that is more and more democratized and uh, more companies are having data that they don't know what to do with or they need people to do it with. And I think working in data and doing, being a data scientist is still being quite early in, in this industry where this data access is quite new and there's still a lot of things to discover so that's like the, the new aspect of it like being early and maybe helping the democratization from doing the job of understanding the data doing analytics and then bringing it back to business educating people on why is this useful and why we should do more of the data analytics that's what is interesting and kind of being a bridge in this field i completely agree so I only have uh, a couple or two more questions uh, for you, and they're mm -hmm. about sort of advice for the listeners. Uh, first, I wanted to ask you, what, what advice would you have for up-and-coming data scientists? It depends. If it's a newly graduated student, I would say you don't need to start as a data scientist, but really, depending on what you study, I mean, if you came out of a PhD or master in applied math, then yes. You, you could start as a data scientist and you learn on the job. But if you didn't have such a scientific background, you could start in a BI team or in a data engineering team and already get to know this aspect of a job for a few years before you switch to the data science. And if you are already more advanced in your career and you're trying to do a switch, then yeah, look at your background and your skill. Do you come more from computer science, software engineering, and then uh, try to be this data scientist that is implementing things in production so it's already kind of close to your skill set while if you come from business sales or finance then you can be a data scientist that is more doing learning python and running statistical package visualization so that you can explain to business 
what is happening. So just be curious about what are the different profiles, the different kind of tasks a data scientist can do and go step by step from something that is close to your current profile to something that it's new to you. And uh, what advice would you have for data science leaders? Be relentless in recruiting and uh, maybe yeah, trying to bring in your team people with different backgrounds so that they can complete each other. And always pair up a senior with a junior. And what I realized with a junior data engineer, data scientist, is they usually have a lot of new ideas, new technology they want to try, while the senior is more worried about the stability of the system. So it's, it's great to have the two opinion in your team. And I think, yeah, because this, this field is so new and things are changing fast, bring a lot of emphasis on trainings, like making sure people keep growing their skills, their technical skills, their soft skills. Yeah, but uh, they, are, they are where they want to be in five years. Look after the team and build them up so they can have a good career. I love that. Carol, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your insights, your wisdom, your journey. It's been really, really great. No, thanks, Felipe. It was my honor, and I'm very happy you reached out. And uh, good luck with the continuation of the podcast. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y. So F-Y-R-E-B-O-X dot com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.